You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So as you probably know, uh, we are continuing in our sermon series through the book of Exodus. Uh, the series is called Shaped by the Exodus, and, and we've said this pretty much every week, and I'm going to say it again, uh, that the Exodus is an in-depth case study in the way that God saves. Meaning, when we look at the Exodus, we see the very way that God saves. It's not just a historical event. It's telling us about who God is. The way He saves historically and eternally. The way He saves individuals and the way He saves His people corporately. The Exodus, because of that, is our family history as the church, as God's people. We can look at the Exodus as our family history. And so through the Exodus, we can better understand our place in the world. The writers of the New Testament use the narrative of the Exodus as a means of interpreting and showing meaning in the life and work of Jesus. And so as we look at the story of the Exodus, we can better understand our Savior. And this is what I want us to to remember this morning as we go through the text, that we are an Exodus-shaped people with an Exodus-shaped Savior, and we're doing Exodus-shaped work in a world and in a neighborhood which desperately needs an Exodus. And so to that end, last week we saw kind of this climactic moment in the book of Exodus, The people of Israel were given instructions by the Lord as to what they were to do on the night that the final plague came into Egypt. The plague being the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. God told Moses and Aaron to tell all the people that they should get a lamb who is unblemished, a year old, and that they should sacrifice this lamb, that they should paint their doorposts with the blood of the lamb, that they should feast on the roasted flesh of the lamb, and that when the angel of death passed by the houses in Egypt, if the angel saw the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, that they would be saved. And we talked about how that was just a placeholder, was just foreshadowing for what God ultimately has accomplished in the shed blood of his son, our perfect Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. That all who put their hope in the blood of Jesus will be saved from death and purified for a life of being set apart as God's people. So last week in the narrative, the people of Israel had prepared themselves. For a tense and fearful and dark night, knowing that death was coming into their land, knowing that many of their neighbors, that everyone in Egypt who didn't have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost would experience death in their household. Many of them probably trembled and could not sleep. But trying to fall asleep in their homes, the people of Israel were hoping that the blood on their doorposts would truly be enough to save them from God's righteous judgment. And today's text covers what actually took place that night after the people of Israel shut themselves inside their homes behind their blood-covered doors. What actually happened when God's judgment came into the land? Beginning in verse 29 of of chapter 12, the text reads like this. It says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, 
who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. And so the judgment that God promised was coming has come. And all of the people in Egypt who had not trusted in Yahweh, who had not put their hope in the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, experienced death in their homes. And there's hysteria in Egypt. There's weeping and there's fear. It's a terrifying experience. It's a dark and sad experience. There's not a home in Egypt apart from those who had put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost where there's not someone lying dead. From the palace of Pharaoh to the dungeon of the servant, in every home there was somebody lying dead. And Pharaoh has finally commanded that Israel leave the land of Egypt. He's finally commanding what the people have been begging for, to be set free. God's judgment has turned Pharaoh into a fearful servant to the people of Israel, begging them that they would leave, though they had been begging to leave all along. Now, we we shouldn't misinterpret this. This is not a conversion story of Pharaoh. He hasn't all of a sudden, because of God's judgment, decided to be a follower of Yahweh. But it does reveal something significant. It reveals that in the end, when God's judgment come, there will not be anyone, no matter how powerful or how wicked, there will not be anyone who will not see and understand and have an amount of respect for the power of God. Though not all will come to know the fullness of his love or reciprocate his love in faith and repentance, all will know that the God of the Bible, the God of the Exodus, is the Lord. This is what God has been promising all along as he's warned Egypt about the plagues. He says, the people in Egypt will know that I am the Lord. And as bodies are lying dead, the people of Egypt are painfully aware. The text goes on in verses 33 through 36. It says, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and they've asked for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have all that they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Church, God has given the lowliest slaves the spoils of victory because of the blood of the Lamb. 
The people who formerly feared being killed by their harsh slave masters are now being feared by those slave masters because of the power of their God. Oppression has been replaced with favor. Freedom has come through the blood of the Lamb. But God did not stop only at freedom. He's both freed the people of Israel and given them blessings beyond compare. And there are a lot of things packed in that that we can draw out from the people of Israel plundering Egypt. But really, I just want us to focus on one. And that is that God is specifically fulfilling a covenant promise he made over 700 years ago to a man named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, God says to Abraham, he says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The the suffering and slavery of God's people was never plan B. It was never an accident that God's people suffered in Egypt, but it also wasn't an accident or plan B that God stepped in to bring about judgment and salvation for his people. For 700 years, God has been preparing his people Israel for this day that they would leave the land of Egypt having been slaves but now rulers. The Exodus is really continually showing us the reality that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is a promise-keeping God. The book of the Exodus is really all about God fulfilling His promises over and over and over again. We've seen that in almost every text that we've looked at. And the text continues in verse 37. And and this is where we're going to probably hang out for the rest of the morning. It says, beginning in verse 37, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot beside women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the people of Israel are leaving Egypt as a large and powerful nation. Remember, this is a people whom the Egyptians tried to commit genocide against, tried to wipe them out all together, but they multiplied and multiplied. They grew in strength just as God had promised. And they leave Egypt as a a giant army of over 600,000 men, not counting women and children, with wealth in silver and gold in livestock. See, God promised to make them great in the land of Egypt. And here they are. A multiplied people leaving the land of their affliction and beginning a new life together as a new nation made up of freed men and women. 
after 430 years and one particular night of God watching over them faithfully and lovingly, they were now free from servitude under Pharaoh. Now up to this point in our, our sermon series, as we've been looking at the book of Exodus, we've primarily seen it as, as a story of God's relationship to his people Israel the Hebrew people from the line of Abraham. And we've certainly applied that to the, the true Israel of the church. But verse 38 says something really interesting. And, and this is a verse that, that is going to hold our attention, I think, for, for really the majority of this sermon. And that is that verse 38 says this. It says, A mixed multitude also went with the people of Israel out of Egypt. A mixed multitude. This refers to non-Hebrew people who joined Israel in the exodus out of Egypt. And, and we don't really know very much about, about who this group is. But what we do know is that they were not Hebrews. They were not of the line of Abraham. We don't know if this means that that they were made up primarily of Egyptians who over the course of the first nine plagues had seen the power and glory of Yahweh and decided to start asking their Israelite slaves, what can we be doing to be saved from this final plague? And, and maybe some of those Egyptians had painted their doorposts that night and partook in the Passover. Maybe they were people who woke up in the middle of the night to find their husband or father or son or brother dead and realized that, that the God of this people, Israel, is the God worth following. Though I'm weeping and mourning and terrifying, I'm going to go with those people who have a God much more powerful than Pharaoh. Maybe they were just afraid. Maybe they were afraid that if they stayed in Egypt, that Israel's God would not relent and that they would soon be killed like their brothers and sons and husbands. Or maybe they just saw that the people of Israel were plundering Egypt and taking all of the wealth out of the land and, and just wanted to follow where the prosperity was. And maybe it includes some of all of the above. Some who had put their hope in Yahweh, some who didn't, some who had selfish motives, some who didn't, some who had been saved through the Passover, and some who weren't. But what we know is it was a mixed multitude. And this, I think, could be surprising to many of us as we consider the Old Testament. It's really common for us as 21st century Westerners to read the Old Testament primarily as as a strange story about how God relates to this one ethnic group, the Hebrew people. And it seems like maybe he just hates all the other ethnic groups. But this text blows that thought right out of the water. It, it might be common for us to believe that, that the Bible in the Old Testament is primarily about God's love for a race or an ethnic group. But all throughout the Old Testament, and, and I won't go through all the examples because it would be exhausting for all of us, but God continues to graft non-Hebrews into his covenant community. He used people from other 
nations, other backgrounds, other customs, people who look differently, people who speak different languages, people who formerly worship different gods to be a part of his community. The Old Testament is not about a race or an ethnic group. It is about God. It's about God's covenant people who are made up of any who would trust in him. See, God has always desired to have a mixed multitude of people following him, representing him, and glorifying him. This is what God has always desired, to have a mixed multitude of people following him, representing him, and glorifying him. And we can know that because in the end of all things, if we go to the book of Revelation and see what will God's people look like when Jesus returns and finally makes all things new, we can see that in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. It says this. Hear how similar this is to the mixed multitude coming out of Egypt. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Church, God is going to have for himself a redeemed people who have been saved and purified by the blood of his Son, and that people will be made up of those from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every socioeconomic class, every political affiliation. See, the Passover is not an account of God having mercy on a homogenous people. The Passover is a foreshadowing for the heavenly, eternal reality that God will have a mixed multitude glorifying him forever. This is groundbreaking. This is really big. The people fleeing Egypt on the night of the final plague didn't all look the same. They didn't all have the same story or family customs. They weren't all former slaves. They weren't all descendants of Abraham. They probably were not all spared from the effects of the judgment of death of the firstborn that night. But together they fled as a new people, a new nation. And as a ragtag group of thousands that it left Egypt that night, God's glory was on display through a mixed multitude of people. Church, what we can learn from this is that God cares for the outsider. He cares for the outsider and he desires to show his love to strangers to those who don't yet know him, speak like his people speak or think like his people think. He desires to reveal his glory through the diversity of all mankind. So church, we must be a people who love those whom we are not like. That's why last week we spoke out against white supremacy that led to a mass shooting. We called white supremacy satanic 
Because God's word clearly reveals that any propagation that one ethnic group or race is better than the other is totally against what his hope is for his kingdom because God is having a mixed multitude for himself. God's heart is for the mixed multitude, so we ought to be a church who desires to be for the mixed multitude in our midst. So let's ask ourselves, if God's kingdom is a mixed multitude, who are we to embrace that we might not already be embracing? And how are we to do that? Well, let's consider who is unlike you? Who looks different than you? Who is a part of a different generation than you? Who has different interests and hobbies and convictions than you? Who do you know who came from a very different background or community than you? Who around you is in a very different socioeconomic class than you? Who do you know that believes differently than you? Or who has different expectations or definitions of what success and happiness are than you do? On the night that Israel fled from Egypt, it was a given that they would do so with their Israelite brothers and sisters. People who looked like them, who had been slaves like them, who had the same lineage and customs as them, who believed in the same God as them, and who raised their children like they did. It didn't take effort for the Israelites to include fellow Israelites in the flight that night. But it would have taken much more thoughtfulness to invite the foreigner. To invite the Egyptian who was formerly a slave master. To invite those who had experienced the righteous judgment of God. But they did. And so our lives, both personally and corporately as a church, primarily as a church made up of neighborhood parishes, should be geared toward welcoming in outsiders and those whom we are not like in order that the mixed multitude of the people of Montrose and ultimately the city of Houston might come to know the Lord who saves from death. Church, this means that our living rooms and our parish gatherings and our dinner tables should be places in which those who are very different than us are lovingly invited to participate. Our parish gatherings and our homes and our lunch breaks and our coffee dates should be aimed at allowing people who are unlike us to belong even if they don't yet believe. And this isn't only an appeal for, for diversity in the church in regards to race or maybe generation. It's an appeal towards simply making our lives and our parish gatherings places that are open and welcoming in which non-Christians can be invited to enter in without needing prior knowledge, without needing a Christian vocabulary without having voted for the same candidates we may have voted for, without being convicted about the same social issues that we might be convicted about. 
See, I think that at Sojourn, we are really good at, at living out our belief that, that the church is a family. When we say every week that the church is a people to belong to, I've visited a lot of neighborhood parishes in the last month, and every single one of them felt like family. And I just want you to hear that as, as an encouragement and as a blessing that I felt so loved and so welcomed and, and such a sense of family and hospitality. I think we do that really well. But what I, what I hope that we see in this text is that, that the church being a family without a purpose is not enough. See, if that's how the Israelites operated on the night of the Exodus, Egyptians and pagans would have not had the opportunity to go with them. They would have been left in Egypt being told only about the false gods of Pharaoh and the Egyptian pantheon. They would have never been able to experience full inclusion as part of God's people. And, and so it's, it's my hope, and really this, is, this should be all of our hope, that our neighborhood parish gatherings, specifically our neighborhood parish gatherings, would be aimed first at mission. That when we think about the environment that we're trying to create on a Wednesday night or a Sunday afternoon or a Tuesday night or a Thursday night, that we're thinking about those who are not like us. How can we make them feel welcome? How can we love them well? How can we invite them to participate in the things that God is doing in our lives? If we're aimed first at being a mixed multitude of believers and non-believers who look differently and live differently and have different stories, the Lord is going to start doing really incredible things. Let our parishes be families that relate to, to one another through the common desire to see outsiders made welcome into the covenant family of God. See, if we aim just at family, we'll miss mission. But if we aim at mission, we'll get family. That will happen. We'll have common purpose. We'll have a common vision. We'll have a common goal. We'll be forced to link arms and hold hands and share the load of doing the work of ministry. If we aim at mission first, we'll still get family, and it will be a beautiful, diverse, complex, and challenging family. But if we aim at family first, mission will likely fall to the side. Our parishes, if we aim only at family or if we aim at family before mission, we will at best be welcoming environments to other Christians. Or to other people who look a lot like us, who live a lot like us, and have very similar stories as we do. Without aiming first at mission and hospitality to the outsider, we will never be the mixed multitude that will point our neighbors to the full picture of what God's kingdom is like. So let's just dream together. What if we started radically inviting our friends who don't know the Lord into our parish gatherings? Just consider what might happen. What if we invited our neighbors, even if they don't look like us? What if we invited them, even if they're 20 years older than us? 
What if we invited them, even if they live a lifestyle that we don't understand and certainly don't approve of? What if we invited the poor? Or what if we invited the extremely wealthy? What if we invited people, even if we know they vote a lot differently than we do? What if we showed the world, specifically in Montrose, that God's kingdom is not made up of only people who hold a certain political convictions, grew up in certain types of families, have a certain skin color, who have a certain income? What if Montrose started to see that the church is a diverse kingdom made up of a mixed multitude, all who have trusted in the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ? And what if we really believed that God could reveal himself to our neighbors and to our friends and to our family members who to us seem so far from him? And what if we really believed that like the scriptures tell us that he will reveal himself through the simple means of brotherly and sisterly love, hospitality, and his word being proclaimed? I think I know what might happen. I think our parish gatherings and our dinner tables and our lunch breaks and our living rooms might start being a lot less comfortable than they are right now. We might have to be more thoughtful about the ways that we speak about the Bible or about the nature of God or proclaim the gospel, knowing that the people we're speaking to don't have prior knowledge or the same vocabulary that we do. We might be forced to engage the real world with our convictions and our theology and our political views in ways that we've never had to. But there's something else that's really special that will also start happening. Caitlin didn't read this morning through verse 33, but 43, but, but if you have your Bible, just take a look at verse 43 and, and to the rest of the chapter of chapter 12. It says this, it says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you, and after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Church, if we start making our lives and our weekly neighborhood parish gatherings exodus-shaped communities that invite the stranger, the outsider, the non-believer, the culturally different to participate, soon enough those people will want to participate more fully. Soon enough they'll, they'll go from wanting to participate at our dinner table to wanting to participate in the Lord's table. Some of them will hear the words of grace that has been offered to us in our Savior Jesus Christ and they'll believe them. They'll see that the, the way that of death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus has saved us and they will marvel like we marvel. They'll be moved like we are moved to repent and to trust in Him. 
they'll enter into new life through baptism. And they'll be invited to the Lord's table as our ongoing Passover feast. Though now our neighbors may be strangers and aliens to God's kingdom and maybe even to us, if we are faithful, if we are faithful to include them in our lives and in our church one day, they might be, as the text says, as natives in the land feasting at the table of the Lord. I really believe that to make disciples is simply to lovingly and to engage lovingly and hospitably with those who are not like us. If we commit to that as individuals and as a church made up of parishes and as a congregation and as a family of congregations in this city, then I really believe that the mixed multitude of the most diverse city in the country will begin to radically be invited to taste and see that the Lord Jesus Christ is good. I really believe that Houston will become a microcosm and a foreshadowing of the things to come when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom finally and fully. Like, dream with me here. What if we were not only an Exodus-shaped people as, as the church in this room? And, and what if it wasn't just us doing Exodus-shaped work? But what if we, through the power and work of our Exodus-shaped Savior, saw our neighborhood and city turned into an Exodus-shaped community for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors? And so if you're here this morning and, and you're like me, a Christian who reads this and is challenged and is thinking about all the people in your life who are not like you, that, that you've yet to engage with fully and lovingly, that you've been fearful of, I invite you to come to the table and remember an all-sufficient Savior who will empower you and strengthen you and give you wisdom when you ask for it. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to put your hope in Jesus, if you've yet to see him as the beautiful, all-sufficient, all-powerful Savior who through his death and resurrection has provided forgiveness of sins and new life, I just want you to say, you are welcome here. You are welcome here at Sojourn Montrose in neighborhood parish gatherings in our homes. And you're welcome to be here as long as you want to be here. And you're welcome to belong here even if you never believe. Though it is our hope that you would believe, you can belong without belief. And we as a church will commit to being hospitable and loving, to engaging you with kindness and patience. But maybe this morning, through the word of God drawing you, you are feeling the presence of the Lord move. You are seeing that what Christ has done is exactly what you need. And if, that is your, if that's where you are this morning, I would invite you when we have the table to, to come forward and feast. For in the institution of the Passover, God told Moses and Aaron that no foreigner shall eat of the Passover unless he is circumcised. And so 
So what that means is, is nobody is to have the table of the Lord unless they are truly believers. But if you believe, if the Lord sets you apart in the circumcision of your heart, you can feast upon the Lord. You can feast with us as brother or sister. And so as we prepare for the table, let's pray. Father, would you, by your power, through your spirit, make us a radically loving and hospitable people? Would you break down in our community through your gospel any dividing walls of hostility that are brought about from class differences or race differences or political differences or differences in upbringings or social convictions? Would you bring about unity in your church and unity in our neighborhood through us, your church? I pray, Lord, that even this week our parish gatherings would be made more full of those who are not like us in order that God's glory might be proclaimed through our hospitality and through our love. And Lord, would you do the work of drawing people to yourself? By the power of your spirit, would you show them the beauty and the majesty and the salvation that your son provides? And would we all worship in awe? Would we together as a mixed multitude walk out of the slavery of Egypt and journey on toward the promised land as a people made up of, of those from, from different tribes and tongues, different backgrounds and customs? Lord, that you might receive all the glory through us. Would you do those things, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.